Hey, wonderfuls, welcome to episode 375 of the JV Club. This was an opportunity I just could not pass up. Um, As you know from my announcement last week, uh, like many people, I think, in the entertainment world, I just couldn't bring myself to put out a regular episode last week. Uh, I didn't want to take focus away from the extraordinary things that have been happening in our country, um, which isn't to say, like, I certainly don't mean that in any kind of a preachy way. And by the way, I personally still needed to be able to escape from time to time and and have entertainment and take a breath when I wasn't asleep uh, or or, you know, sort of processing and and acting um, in accordance with kind of the the things I believe in and what's been going on again in uh, in the world and in the country uh, specifically. So with all of this being said, I reached out to Colin Miller, uh, just somebody I have tremendous respect for, whom I like very much. He was a boy of summer, I guess, last year. Um, And I'm such a fan of his. He is one of the hosts and creators of the Undisclosed podcast. And um, he has actually been working with Breonna Taylor's family um, in their case. So he seemed like such a great resource to kind of unpack some of the stuff that is uh, there are many, many, many facets of what's been going on. But I think one of the facets that's worth exploring more is having just, you know, a casual conversation about no knock warrants. What do we mean when we talk about that? What's that all about? And if you're expecting like a dry conversation, I promise you that is not what you will get because I can't help being me and I'm a dork. So get ready for Colin to be effortlessly polished and informed and for me to be a dork. But I do think that you will get something out of the conversation. I certainly did. And um, I hope everyone's doing well. I send you all my best. I am very proud and lucky to have you as listeners. All right. Uh, Well, thank you so much, uh, my friend and I wish more often colleague, Colin Miller, uh, for sitting down with me for a moment to talk about what's been going on, specifically with respect to your involvement in uh, trying to not just seek justice for Breonna Taylor, but also uh, seek to elevate the conversation about no-knock warrants and... uh, get it out into the public in a way that hopefully they will better understand. And because of your work on Undisclosed, I can very confidently say that you are just the person for the job. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what happened. I think most people uh, probably have a fairly strong sense now of what happened to Brianna um, at her home, but would you mind walking folks through it just uh, for a refresher in case they want to kind of reacclimate to the situation that we're talking about? Yeah, sure. So Brianna Taylor was a woman in Louisville, Kentucky. She was previously an EMT and was at the time of this an emergency room technician who was hoping to become a nurse one day. She had previously dated a man named Jamarcus Glover, and Glover was involved in drugs and drug uh, selling drugs and dealing drugs. 
And the police had gotten these five no-knock warrants in the case, meaning the police don't have to knock and announce their presence when they arrive at the scene. Uh, one of those was for Brianna Taylor's residence. The only basis for that was that about two months before they sought the warrant, a police officer saw Jamarcus Glover picking up a package at Brianna Taylor's house. And the officer just suspected with no basis that this package could have had drugs. It had actually clothes and shoes. Mm. And so on the basis of that alone, they got this no-knock warrant. And then after having already arrested Glover and some of his cohorts, uh, back in March, they go to Brianna Taylor's house about 12.30 a.m. They don't knock. They don't announce. And her boyfriend at the time, Kenneth Taylor, thinks they're being burglarized and they're under attack. And so he fires one bullet in the apartment and the police officers respond by spraying over 20 bullets. They go inside Brianna Taylor's apartment, the neighboring apartment, and about eight of those bullets hit Brianna Taylor, taking her life. And so the the conversation, obviously, um, there's been a, a, a lot of discussion as this information has sort of rolled out that, you know, it didn't get a ton of attention when it happened. Uh, it was in the middle of, you know, the sort of, I should say, the, the peak pandemic conversation happening. Um, we saw something similar happen with the Arbery case where you sort of hear about it, but there's this flood of information coming in about COVID-19, not only in the United States, but all over the world. So it's challenged by this incredibly... Um, pressing and, dare I say, juicy uh, information about this pandemic uh, that people are just sort of consuming with a fever, um, pun intended. And uh, and so some of this sort of gets tucked to the side. And then when the events of the last couple of weeks really hit their pitch, uh, that was a real opportunity for some of these uh, other things that had been happening prior to what happened to uh, George Floyd to come to the surface and to really be subjects of discussion and uh, to, to hopefully be a part of the momentum um, in seeking justice for for these these people and, and justice for people in the future as well. Um, there 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 was some <laughs> unsurprisingly, there was a lot of, of kind of scuttlebutt about the police originally saying like, no, no, we did. We did knock. We did announce ourselves. Um, did when you came into this? Did you already know, like, in the past tense that that had proven not to be true? Or did you hear that and immediately kind of go, as I think many, many of us would, hmm, then why was it a no-knock warrant? Like, really? Do the police usually take it upon themselves to go ahead and, <laughs> isn't that the point? It just doesn't seem likely that the police would go, you know what? Let's do it. Let's knock. You know what? Let's announce ourselves. Let's play everything right. And let's have body cams and let's do all that. And like when that doesn't, you know, doesn't seem likely. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah. When I started working on the case, it wasn't a certainty that they had not knocked and announced their presence. Their claim at the time was we did knock and announce our presence. And my takeaway is the same as the one you had is you don't go to all the trouble of securing this no knock warrant and then decide, well, we're here, we're going to go ahead and knock and announce our presence. And so, no, I didn't know that at the time for certain, but I strongly suspected that this, in fact, was executed as intended as a no-knock warrant. 
And how did you get involved with the case? I guess that's an important key piece of information that we should establish right now. Yeah, so I, at the University of South Carolina School of Law, have students who work for me as research assistants after the semester is over. And I, I guess just on social media or one of the articles or the news, had heard something about this case and wanted to work on no-knock warrants, had done a little bit of research in the field and thought this would be something that would be good for my students and I to work on. So I reached out to the attorneys in the case and they said, yeah, you know, sort of what you mentioned earlier, we think this is not only something where we can bring justice to her family and her, but also to chance to have a dialogue on a broader level about policing issues and specifically whether we should have no-knock warrants under what circumstances. And so they were happy for us to do some research work for them. And how common is that, just to put it in a broader context, of law students? I mean, I think for those of us who are a little bit more um, criminal justice wonks, uh, if even if that's not our walk of life per se, uh, know that it's... It can be common to have um, professors and law students be a part of uh, an investigation or be a part of supporting a case in one direction or the other. Um, is is that pretty common or is it rare? Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> there's kind of an unfortunate divide somewhat that I think the wall is falling down a bit between what you would call clinical law professors and doctrinal law professors. So clinical professors would be things like running an innocence clinic or running a bail clinic at a law school where literally the students are working on cases and doing a lot of legwork on real cases with real clients. And then you would say, well, the doctrinal professors, they write about theory and they're up there in the ivory tower and they're doing sort of this esoteric research. And that used to be a pretty big divide, which again, I think is somewhat falling down now. And so uh, I think more and more you start to see professors and their students working on these real world issues and trying to help in some way, given so many crises we have in criminal justice. And I really feel like and I don't know if you were like this before Undisclosed, but I strongly suspect that you were. In fact, I know you were because that's the reason you got involved with <laughs> with Ravia and Susan in the first place. Why am I scolding you? Uh, that you, I feel like you have a bat signal, but your bat signal is not a particular shape. Um, it is uh, it is certain pieces of information that reach you about the law, about evidence, um, about you know potential questions that arise for you that you kind of notice that no one else is asking. Um, Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, evidence is my thing. And it's about the fairness of the system and the rules of the game, right? And so you might look at something and have a very strong visceral and emotional takeaway when you see the video with George Floyd, uh, Armored Arbery, or you hear about the Breonna Taylor case. The way I look at it is, okay, we had this event, this horrible tragedy that happened. Let's think about that from the realm of what are the laws of no-knock warrants and when they can be issued and executed? What are possible charges that could be brought in the case? You know, How is this system set up in a way that either allows for this to happen, doesn't allow, and then how do we on the back end sort of adjudicate these issues and give justice where it's deserved? Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the the history of no knocks. Um, enlighten us a little bit. How, where, where do they come from? Uh, it's it's easy to imagine that 
you know, you could very easily make a case for it if you are just coming from the one-sided point of, look, we, you know, we need to design, we need to design uh, the criminal justice system to protect its cops, to protect, you know, the interests of the the, the people, if you will, um, both capital P and little p. Uh, and and so, listen, you know, there are going to be situations in which, you know, we just have to be able to just burst in without knocking. Is is that what that looked like? What was that first conversation like? Do you think um, when when no knocks were presented as a as an opportunity? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the pieces of collateral damage from the war on drugs. And essentially, this is something where the government decides we need to crack down on drug dealing and drug use. And so whereas, you know, going all the way back to common law England, there was recognition of person's house as his or her castle and you have privacy and security interests, and that leads to the American law of you need to knock and announce when you're executing a search warrant. Uh, the war on drugs leads to SWAT teams oftentimes executing these warrants, and the Supreme Court eventually endorsing and saying, you know, in certain circumstances, um, you're worried about a suspect destroying evidence. You're worried about a suspect harming the police or other individuals in certain narrow circumstances. There could be cases where police should be able to execute a search warrant without knocking and announcing to protect the evidence and to protect people's lives. Unfortunately, that over the years blossoms into a field where judges are rubber stamping requests for no-knock warrants. There's very little evidence to support these warrants, and there's very strong evidence that these no-knock warrants target the minority community. They often are not fruitful in producing results, and they lead to deaths and serious injuries for understandable reasons, because as in this case, the homeowner has no idea what's going on, and so they're trying to protect their castle, and it can lead to this crossfire that we had here. What a nightmare. I mean, what just what an absolute, utter nightmare. You talk about the those narrow restrictions. Uh, what What kind of language was in place when no-knock warrants were originally established? What, was the language, there, there are narrow circumstances, or is the language, these are the narrow circumstances, point by point? Yeah, and that's the problem, is that there's not specific language. Um, there's a bunch of Supreme Court cases, one of them being Hudson versus Michigan, which kind of restates the requirement of knock and announce. But the Supreme Court is sort of generally recognizes, you know, there might be circumstances where based upon evidentiary concerns, security concerns, an officer can seek a no-knock warrant. And so what you see is, you know, a case like this, all they have in the no-knock warrant is to say, oh, this case involves drug dealers and they've been known to destroy evidence and maybe flee. And so this should be a no-knock warrant. And there's not, I mean, some jurisdictions have banned no-knock warrants. Some require specific language. And in fact, there's uh, an ordinance being considered in Louisville that's going to very much restrict no-knock warrants. But most jurisdictions, pretty vague. Um, you give pretty much any reason that you think a no-knock warrant is justified and the judge is going to sign off on it. That's everyone's worst fear, right? Is that that a cop is just saying, I don't know, boss, I just got a bad feeling about this one. Like that's sort of the the the, the dramatized fear uh, that that it could be that 
baseless, that it could literally be on someone's hunch. When officers are you know, asking for that execution, when they're asking for that rubber stamp, how much information do they need to provide to their superiors, to the judge, etc., about about what they have looked into with respect to the other residents, if any, at that home? I mean, is there are is there are they bothering to say, you know, this is who the home belongs to. This is her track record. This is who this person is. Yes, we're putting her in danger, but gosh, it seems worth it. Or is does all of that can all of that fall by the wayside with little to no uh, issue falling back on the police? Yeah. And so to your point, no, there's no requirement to consider. <sighs> so there could have been a child. There could have been an elder. I mean, not to say, you know, there was Brianna. That's enough for this to be absolutely dreadful. But and and her boyfriend, of course, of course, her boyfriend. But the idea that there could be, you know, oh, it could be her sister had come, you know, there could have been five kids in there. There could be, and there, and I'm sure there are in certain situations. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are cases, you know, I, we've been going through the data from Utah for the past five years, and Utah actually has a transparency law, and they'll detail pets, you know, dogs and cats that are injured as a result of these no-knock raids. There are children, there are sometimes babies, the neighboring apartment in this case where they sprayed bullets into that neighboring apartment the resident was pregnant there and you know easily could have taken the life of both the mother and the child and so yeah no no this is something where there's no requirement that the police say well on the one hand we think this might be a drug dealer who could destroy evidence if we knock and announce but on the other hand they're married they have young kids no there's no requirement for the latter portion where they're considering what's the actual safety and security concern we have about the residents of this place. And what do you think, and this is just, you know, purely your feelings and thoughts based on your experience, how does it become so unimportant to find that out, to consider those aspects? Because that's, again, something that we all very much want to believe. And I think many, many people um you know, our levels of, of cynicism or our levels of being jaded uh, are are usually commensurate with whatever our own personal experience is or, or our own education is. Many, many people, I think, you know, a lot of people have been saying, I feel the same way, uh, are, are really kind of having their eyes open for perhaps the first time um, following what happened to George Floyd fall and then, you know, coming back and coming to further understand what has happened to Brianna, what happened in the Arbery case. Um, we all want to believe that that we, we live in a country where those kinds of things are taken into consideration, right? Um, what, do you, what do you think is going on? Yeah, this is something my colleague Seth Stoughton is a former police officer from Florida, and he writes about these two archetypes we have with policing. We have the guardian police officer and the warrior police officer, the guardian cop and the warrior cop. And, you know, what we aspire to and what a lot of the protests now we're dealing with is the guardian cop. And that's someone who sees it as their duty to protect the community and its residents. But when you look at pop culture, when you look at literature in the field, over the years, we've crept over and shifted to this idea of the warrior cop. Uh, which is over-aggressive, sometimes militarized, the SWAT teams we see often with these no-knock warrants, the chokeholds, 
some of the behavior that has led to these protests is that we really have shifted from this ideal of the guardian cop over to the warrior cop. And I think that's at the heart of these protests is, you know, there's two things. One, it should be the guardian cop. And two, that warrior cop, it falls down upon people of color, um, people who lack the financial means to live in certain areas. And disproportionately, we're not doing justice to certain members of our communities. Okay, we're going to take a break. I will be back after a word from our wonderful buddies at Maximum Fun. We are the host of My Brother, My Brother, and Me, and now, nearly 10 years into our podcast, the secret can be revealed. All the clues are in place, and the world's greatest treasure hunt can now begin. Embedded in each episode of My Brother, My Brother, and Me is a micro-clue that will lead you to 14 precious gemstones all around this big, beautiful blue world of ours. So start coming through the episodes. Uh, let's say starting at episode 101 on. Yeah, the early episodes are pretty problematic, so there's no clues in those episodes no no not at all the better ones the good ones clues ahoy listen to every episode repeatedly in sequence laugh if you must but mainly get all the great clues my brother my brother me it's an advice show kind of but a treasure hunt mainly anywhere you find podcasts or treasure maps my brother my brother me the hunt is on So let's, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the numbers, if you're comfortable throwing some of that out there. Um, When we talk about the disproportion, we talk about um, it being uh, disproportionately unfair to minorities. What what kind of numbers are we talking about? Yeah, so if we look at it, there were a few studies that we found in our research. One was out of Denver around 2000. Uh, they found that more than 82% of no-knock raids targeted minority residents. Um, there was research done by Radley Balco in Little Rock, Arkansas for the Washington Post. Uh, 80% of the no-knock warrants were, were for black suspects. Um, and then there's a more recent study also in Little Rock done by KATV. And what they found is the people targeted by no-knock warrants, 67% black males, 15% black females. So again, around 82%. Um, So yeah, four out of five, around 80% in all three of these studies, it was was African-American men and women who were being targeted by the no-knock warrants, despite that being vastly disproportionate to the racial breakdown in those cities. How does someone argue against those figures like it it seems to me that you know by default your argument against something like this conversation is inherently racist perhaps i'm wrong but is the argument are people you know if you if you if you put this to the chief of police you know in arkansas if you put this to the chief of police a chief of police in kentucky in utah are they going to just look at you with their eyes wide open staring you straight in the face and say well that's because those people commit those crimes more or that's because they just happen to be more dangerous. Like, what is the argument to that? Yeah, there's not really one. And that's, you know, in terms of committing the crimes more, if you look at the data, there's data out there about the percentage of white people who use and sell drugs versus black people. And it's not per capita really any different. And so um, this is just an example of racial profiling and again looking at 
in the news, the media, pop culture, how African-American people are portrayed versus Caucasian people. And no, I mean, you know, you could imagine the head of the police department looking at the numbers and trying to write them off. Um, and probably that's happened a number of times. What typically happens, so Houston, a couple of years ago, uh, ended their use of no-knock warrants. It wasn't in response to data or statistics. It was in response to a case like the Breonna Taylor case that involved a botched execution of a no-knock warrant. And so that's typically what it is, is the numbers are presented and you know, no one really just looks at numbers and says that's going to move the needle. It takes something like a Breonna Taylor case to, to put a face to this. And then the numbers can be used to support and say, oh, this is terrible. We need to reform this or get rid of it. What a grim reality, the idea that we've created within our criminal justice system um, uh, the need for a martyr for every cause. And and in many cases, multiple, multiple martyrs. That sort of falls into perhaps a little bit the category of, um, you know, on the media, uh, it was a terrific podcast, uh, did, a, did an episode recently, um, actually much more focused on, if only focused on COVID, talking about those numbers and the bigger the numbers get, the more they become statistics and the, and the less human they become. Um, do you think that's a situation is that people are just numbers just don't just don't mean enough to people who we're, we're all so hyper stimulated by so much information coming in all the time about various things? Yeah, I mean, it's something we see in the wrongful conviction field, too. I mean, you can come forward and say, A, we have all these wrongful convictions in a year, and B, and it's the same thing. A hugely disproportionate percentage of wrongful convictions are of African-Americans, specifically African-American males. But you just hear that. You just hear the numbers. I lay out the numbers for you. And that's not going to change eyewitness identification procedure in a state. It's not going to change the availability of post-conviction DNA testing. What you do is come in and say, look, this individual, like the case we're working on now, was 16 years old at the time he was convicted, and he's been in prison for the last 23 years. Here's his story. Hear from him, his voice, how he was wrongfully convicted. And that's going to lead to change much more than just saying, unfortunately, Here's a statistic about wrongful convictions. And that's that you're speaking of the case that you have just rolled out on Undisclosed, Jonathan. I very much think of him as Jonathan slash Johnny. So you guys have really done your job because that's, I can't even remember his last name. Yeah, Jonathan I just Irons. remember. And that's, you know, that's, Jonathan, just... that's another great moment is um, Maya Moore, who is one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And this probably doesn't get the attention. That, you know, a lot of people say the Breonna Taylor case itself didn't get as much attention because it was a female victim as opposed to a male victim. Maya Moore, one of the most incredible athletes uh, we've had in basketball, takes a sabbatical and says, I'm going to take not just one, but two years off. Um, And a big chunk of that is working on this Jonathan Irons case and trying to prove he was wrongfully convicted. And it's gotten a good deal of attention. That's how I learned about the case about a year ago and started working on it. But um, yeah, I mean, that's that's another opportunity there to say, look, here's a way the system is fundamentally broken and to put a face and a story and a voice to it, as opposed to just saying African-American men are targeted and are wrongfully convicted much more than white men. 
Yeah, that's a really, I mean, it seems like just to go, yeah, go pop over to that case for a moment. Boy, talk about what seems like the worst nightmare for an Af- a young African-American man um, to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, there the cases are chalk a block. I've never said chalk a block full. I'll never say it again. Uh, I don't live in the 1950s for one. Uh, but, but the, you know, it, there are just case upon case upon case of the of the of of an African American man being in the wrong place at the wrong time, right? Like that's sort of that that's sort of the, the the I mean that that's a way of defining it that is over an oversimplification, but in, at the same time it's like no, that's that's pretty much at the at the core of of many 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 wrongful convictions when it comes to African American men. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say, and you know this is a case like many of those too where and. Part of this is that his alibi defense wasn't presented properly at trial, but, you know, you look at these cases and in many of them, there was an alibi and um, the white eyewitness is favored by the jury over the black alibi witnesses in the case. And that's a big problem. Um Racial profiling is a big problem. Cross-racial identifications are a big problem. Socioeconomic status is a big problem. Age, uh, education. So, yeah, I mean, there's just so many factors that come together in these cases that help to explain why we disproportionately wrongfully convict African-American men in this country. And in Jonathan Iron's case, he was in a predominantly white neighborhood right at the same time that a robbery that involved a shooting of a white man, a homeowner, occurred. And boy, that's kind of all it, I mean, you know, like, obviously, you've you've begun to lay out the information, you've begun to lay out the evidence. Um, You've only released the first episode, but, but the indication is there are numerous witnesses who absolutely account for where Jonathan was uh, at exactly the time he would have to be committing this other crime. But I have a very sick feeling on my stomach that we are going to continue to hear for the next remaining three episodes about how uh, you can just say to a jury, I mean, I don't know, but I'm so worried that it's going to come down to someone saying like, what are the chances that two African-American guys are going to be in this white neighborhood and one of them commits? You know what I mean? Like, is that where we're we're headed? Yeah. And then, you know, that's the other side of it, which is and again, this sort of takes us back to the protests, police and prosecutorial misconduct and particularly police misconduct. There's sort of a Mark Furman thing about the O.J. Simpson case moment that uh, wasn't revealed at trial, but was found later in this case. And it's it's chilling. Um, one of the basically the key detective in the case um, that implicates Jonathan Irons had a blog that goes into war stories about all sorts of misdeeds and misconduct he did while in the force. And it's it's chilling to read him sort of gleefully explain what he did in these cases to uh, manufacture evidence, et cetera. Whoa, wait, the the blog that he was doing without thinking about what that would mean or like what was it for his own private enjoyment? Was it for how what, what, what I mean, I'm so glad that he did and that it cracks open opportunities for people to, you know, get justice. But what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it gets down to that that warrior cop guardian cop dichotomy. This is sort of a blog celebrating the idea, not just a warrior cop, but. Um, 
implicate the, the Serpico situation, the, the, the tainted cop, the cop who who uh, thinks they're above the law, right? That, I mean, that's that's part of the warrior cop versus the guardian cop too. Is you think you're above the law, you're kind of the, the the dirty Harry, and you can disregard the actual rules because you know what's right and how to get justice. Yeah, that's a that's a whole phenomenon that is that that I think is that those conversations are also coming up within the protests and within these conversations that we're having about uh, about the police is, you know, that they're uh, like, I didn't know until recently that apparently there are a lot of cops who wear a patch on their uniform. That's the Punisher, the 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 comic book character slash some people may know it as a I guess a Netflix show, but the Punisher um, logo who, you know, in the comic books is like an ex cop who has taken the law into his own hands and I think maybe a Nazi. <laughs> like it's incredibly disturbing that somehow these patches are just seamlessly blending in with whatever other patches might be on a policeman's uniform and the message that is being put out there and is being celebrated by these you know these guys who are working side by side is you know if no matter what we have to do we're gonna you know and and we're gonna we're gonna get we're gonna get justice in scare quotes um and and that's kind of and, and and what I was thinking too when you were describing the blog is like this is a person who's pretty sure they're the star of their own movie right that there, there's this and and maybe necessarily we're not doing a great job of well but you know what then there's shows like The Wire but then Wendell Pierce just someone said something about The Wire and Wendell Pierce was like oh you you're not you did you did not watch the show right if you walk away thinking. That the cops on the wire are good guys. Like this is a real problem. If you think that those are great guys, we have we have a real problem because that's the entire message of David Simon's show has been completely missed. Uh, but this idea of yeah, the glorification of the the person who who takes the law into their own hands. We you know we love those stories of of people who go out on their own and they're renegades and they're doing all this stuff because you know damn it we're not getting justice through the normal channels and then and then the idea of then on top of that slapping it back into the system is just so ironic right the idea of like now we're now we're going outside the law and but now we're injecting that back into the law i mean what yeah and you know i mean that's kind of at the heart of these protests too is what are we not seeing because you see these cases where it turns out there is body cam footage or someone has used an iPhone to record something and inevitably the police officers have told one story you know, this is what happens uh, we were feeling threatened or this was an aggressive suspect or I didn't use too much force and then the video comes out and it completely contradicts what the officer has to say and that's the scary part is I mean how many of these cases out there where a police officer has said I thought this person was reaching for a gun or I was feeling threatened and I shot this person Um, how many of those that weren't recorded 
turn out to be cases where the officer has just made this up. But to take that even further, would you agree that there are cases where the body cam footage is released and still nothing happens? And so that is terrifying, is the body cams clearly aren't even doing what they're supposed to do 90% of the time because there's still a sense of reckless abandon to the behavior, even if it's captured on camera? Yeah, I mean, and we see... A good example of this in the Armand Arbery case. Uh, so um, one of the cases we previously covered and undisclosed is the case of Dennis Perry, who was accused of this church shooting of Harold and Thelma Swain. And recent DNA evidence has now shown him innocent. He still is in prison, but it points to an alternate suspect. But Yeah, there's some exciting stuff a- afoot with that, that I, that's been very cool to follow. But the interesting part about that is, so, you know, the prosecutor in that case is the same prosecutor, or at least was, in the Arbery case. And one of the two, or well, three men, but, you know, one of the two directly involved in the shooting uh, used to work for her. And... You know, a large reason why it was thought that these charges weren't brought and they eventually shifted prosecutors was, oh, this is a conflict of interest. It's an uncomfortable relationship to have a prosecutor bring charges against this individual who used to work for her. Um, And that's the thing. I mean, you look at grand jury indictments, you look at charges being brought, you look at convictions, you look at everything. And whenever I'm teaching my students, it's always, oh, well, 99% of cases lead to indictments when they're taken to a grand jury except when it's a police involved shooting and then the numbers drop drastically. Well, it's not in your best in- yeah, it's not in your best interest to 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 get on the the opposite side of the people that, you know, you're ostensibly fighting alongside as it were. Yeah, and that's why we see now you know, the, the, among the things these protests are calling for and we've seen in some jurisdictions are citizen review boards about having an independent prosecutor come in to prosecute these cases. And so, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely a critical part of the dialogue is we need to make sure there's accountability here that the people of a jurisdiction have a voice and that this eventual decision about whether to charge and how the case proceeds is done without these conflicts of interest. This is a question that I've had personally that... um you probably know the answer to, so I'm going to throw it in here as well. But in a situation in which um, ultimately there is uh, there is a charge pressed, there is uh, some version of adjudication. Um, I'm thinking specifically of, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Freddie Gray case. Was there not like a judge's adjudication for the first officer that kind of went through that process that then sort of trickled down to other officers? Am I remembering that right? Okay, so so in that case, then obviously we're not talking about a jury. Um, but what are are there situations in which you know we see that the cops uh, that nothing happens to them that they're found not guilty, etc. In in jury trials, when a, a regular old citizen is being asked to set aside their own fears uh, for their lives in the future, if the, what they're seeing is a sort of dark side of of policing and and the sense of like, wait, I'm going to be on the wrong side of the cops from here on forward? Like, is that that an issue? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's another carve out uh, that that applies to seeing even when 
the police are charged, right? I mean, there, there's two parts of it, right? There's one which you just identified about your fear for your own safety and security should you vote guilty against these officers who live in, you know, it's a jury of your peers because you're in the same jurisdiction being policed by the officer. And there's also, and you know, this is where the shift is maybe happening now a bit, is just um, the way that your average citizen views the police, especially if they're not in the communities and in the demographic that is being over-policed. And so a lot of trust um, used to exist where a juror would think, well, clearly, you know, this, this officer is trying to protect me and my fellow citizens, and how could they be guilty of this heinous crime um, with some of the body cam footage and some of the events being videoed and everything, I think, the, the view has changed and hopefully it changes policing for the better. But yeah, I mean, those two factors certainly contributed to um, under conviction rates in, in police involved violence cases. When when students are coming into your classes, Colin, and I don't know if this is the specific place where this would be covered, but are, are kids nowadays who are going into, you know, criminal justice, like when they're interested in becoming attorneys or, or judges or prosecutors, um, and just learning and understanding the law uh, as relates to our criminal justice system, do they have a sense of the, the origins of the police? Because that feels to me that something that has become more widely known and continues to be more widely known through situations like this, through Freddie Gray, through Trayvon Martin, like that the, there's always somebody who comes forward and says, like, need I remind everyone about the origins of the police? Is that something that that young people now have a better sense of? That's my sense. Um, Just sort of anecdotally from teaching classes over the years, it seems like in the past several years with all the attention to um, police shootings and now the, the footage coming out and protests and all that, that I, I think that students are a lot savvier and, and do have that knowledge they might not have had 10, 15 years ago. I feel like you've, you, you guys may have covered it. I don't know if it was in an addendum or um, sometimes I get my uh, criminal justice reform podcast confused <laughs> because I am uh, r- really rapidly uh, ingesting the good ones on a very regular basis. Um, so, you know, when you talk about you're in the darks and you're undisclosed and you're accused um, type of podcasts, uh, they can be very data rich. But uh, I do feel that there there have been some really good conversations about um, about kind of endemic uh problems and and the origins of the police uh in in undisclosed and am i mistaken i feel like that was discussed uncomfortably in a great way on an addendum during the freddie gray coverage this this sort of idea of like this is what this is how police were built this is what they were built for and this is what we have to show for it does that sound familiar yeah, I, I probably wasn't on that particular addendum, but I do recall in the Freddie Gray series, I can probably find and, and send to you that specific episode because I do remember that discussion. Yeah, I'd love to link to that um, for people who want to hear. I've tell everyone, I mean, first of all, you know, I'm such a nerd for Undisclosed. It's like my favorite podcast of all time. Uh, big, big, big shout out to Amelia Donald Perry, who is so passionate and has worked so, so hard to cover um, not just the Freddie Gray story, uh, but also the Keith David story. He, uh, he there's she gave a wonderful little update, um, wonderful yet heartbreaking and extremely enraging update <laughs> recently about some stuff that's afoot. Um, 
which I'm curious to see if you guys are going to do any kind of addendum following up on Amelia's uh, coverage of, of what's happening with Keith, since it sounds like there is some prime Colin Miller legislative material uh, pro- due process kind of stuff that's in the mix with respect to his case. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, did some work, gather motion for a new trial for the Keith Davis Jr. case. And luckily, as you you heard with Amelia's update, it's looking like with this ruling in Maryland, even even the state itself is saying, look, he probably is going to get this new trial. And so absolutely, uh, it's, it's again, sort of dragging feet and we're waiting for this to come. It should have already come. But yeah, I expect and hope in the near future, his conviction is going to be thrown out. And It'll probably be rinse and repeat them. You know, is is Marilyn Mosby and is the state going to take this to yet another trial? And we would absolutely cover that. But um, at some point you wonder, are they finally going to drop this case, especially given the atmosphere and climate that we're in now? Mosby, 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 Mosby. Not great stuff <laughs> coming out of the reporting with the things that Marilyn Bosby has touched. Are there are there uh DAs, are there people that um that you see an inconsistency where because I think one of the things that, that tends to happen is we, you know, you do find uh, poisonous roots. You do find a situation like with Brianna where, you know, you don't suddenly it's not something that happens suddenly. Obviously, it's not something that, wait a minute, all these guys are just great. And, you know, same similarly with with George Floyd. Oh, gosh, all these guys have this spotless, spotless record. And somehow this just happened. And whoops, we didn't we couldn't see this coming. Um, where you really see this kind of systemic, like, pat on the back, don't do that again, you know, go back to work. Um, are, is that, are there situations within the district attorney's offices where, because, because we do kind of continuously hear like, oh, Mosby's at it again, like she's done this other thing that feels incredibly unjust. Um, are there district attorneys where suddenly, like they have this great track record and they seemed to be on the right track in terms of righting wrongs or, you know, being very diplomatic or being very objective and then suddenly something happens or is it kind of the same in the district attorney's offices as you see in the police? Um, yeah, it's interesting. So yeah, that's a huge, broad question. I realize. No, no, it's what you said. I mean, this is sort of the Larry Krasner effect, and so um, essentially, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, we've worked with in many of our cases, is this reform-minded, progressive district attorney in Philadelphia who has really reformed the way that that police department does things. And so then what you get after that is you have a lot of people running and saying, you know, I'm the next Larry Krasner. And so, like, there's this individual, Kim Ogg, in Harris County, uh, Houston, who kind of ran as a progressive prosecutor in the Larry Krasner vein. And then a lot of people in that field have said she hasn't lived up to that promise and hasn't been the reform DA that she promised to be. Um, so that, you know, maybe kind of speaks to your example of someone, but that's that's not sort of out of the blue. It's just she took office and didn't live up to the promises. Um, no, I mean, you pretty much... I feel like that's Marilyn Mosby also. I mean, I think that's... People say that about Kamala Harris. Like, there's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of discussion and fear about 
you know, what you say to win election, what you say to win elections versus what happens when you are officially immersed in the system, capital S, right? Yeah. And what I would say is, you know, that that's something where they maybe never live up to the promise they made on the campaign trail. It's I don't know that I've seen a situation where, you know, a DA starts progressive and you have kind of like the Willie Horton moment where, oh, I was light on crime in this case. Let me really crack down, at least not that I'm aware of. You kind of just get a sense from the start of how a person's going to operate in their MO. I might be missing something and so I might have an example to say, oh, well, this is a person who really started one way and changed. But I think those roots are pretty typically there from the beginning. Oh, oh, it's time for a quick break. I will be back after a word from our friends at Maximum Fun. Hey, everyone. It's I, John Hodgman of the Judge John Hodgman podcast. And I, Elliot Kalin of the Flophouse podcast. And we've made a whole new podcast, a 12-episode special miniseries called I, Podius, in which we recap, discuss, and explore the very famous 1976 BBC miniseries about ancient Rome called I, Claudius. We've got incredible guests such as Gillian Jacobs, Paul F. Tompkins, as well as star of I, Claudius, Sir Patrick Stewart. And his son, non-Sir Daniel Stewart. Don't worry, Dan. You'll get there someday. iPodius is the name of the show. Every week from MaximumFun.org for only 12 weeks. Get them at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's get back to Brianna and No Knocks um, for a moment. What what were you... What is your hope uh, what is your hoped outcome for you know not just the work that you're doing with your wonderful students, but also um, the bigger picture with respect to no knocks? You know, there's a lot of talk on social media and in the media in general about abolishing no knocks altogether. Um, do, you, do you have a personal opinion about that? Do you have an objective uh, feeling about what? Um, you don't have an objective feeling. Those two things probably don't go very well together. Um, they kind of negate each other. Um, about what the what what makes the most sense for our judicial system at this point with respect to no knocks? Yeah, well, I think I think I saw and I haven't read it yet, but I think either yesterday or today, Congress at the federal level has introduced legislation, and one of the pieces is uh, abolishing no knock warrants. Which at the federal level, that would be um, fantastic. Certainly, I would I, I think support. Abolition of no-knock warrants, um, that that would, I think, be workable and feasible. And in Houston, where they got rid of them, there haven't been any reports that this has endangered the safety of officers or civilians or led to an increased destruction of evidence. So, yeah, one abolition at both the federal and state level is certainly something that I would advocate based upon the numbers we've seen. Um, the second is... Uh, the type of legislation that's been proposed in Louisville, uh, some might say it doesn't go far enough, but um, the legislation in Louisville limits no-knock warrants to specified cases like murder or child abduction or hostage taking. There has to be a specific demonstration of imminent threat to someone involved who would be at the scene uh, where the no-knock warrant is executed. Um, It requires body cams and the turning on of the body cam well before the warrant is executed requires transparency like they have in Utah, where there is, I think, quarterly reporting of, you know, what happens in these no-knock raids. So I'm sort of 
extreme reform to make sure that the ills of the past aren't wrought in the future. So one of those two solutions, whether it be abolition or extreme reforms, uh, I think would be what I think I'd like to see come out of this. Great. Quick question. Why Utah? Like, why do you think Utah has that kind of transparency? What what did something happen as we as we've talked about uh, this this last episode, um, it taking one thing or another to to, you know, instigate some sort of change? Um, Was there something that happened in Utah that created that transparency in legislation? What why Utah? That's a good question. So actually, that's one of the projects that one of my students is currently working on is that we, so we, we, um, Utah has in their site, it has this data and they've provided their own summaries. And I reached out to Utah and said, can we get the raw data? Because there's some other questions you want to answer. And so last week, that's what we answered. We went through the data and sort of poured over it to see sort of more specific details. And then my question is, well, why Utah? You know, what led to Utah doing this? So that is one of the projects my student is current. One of my students is currently working on. I don't have the answer yet to say, oh, here's why Utah decided to do this. I'm really excited about the podcast episode about Utah. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, and when you say you reached out, do you mean is that like, are you in a position where you make a phone call and that information is provided, or is that a FOIA? Uh, not a FOIA. Yeah. I mean, this literally was just, we have the summaries. They kind of combine some categories. Like they say, you know, these are nighttime warrants, both no knock and knock and announce. And so I want to say, well, what percent were no knock night? And so I literally just reached out and said, you know, my students and I are working on this. We're hoping to get some legislation. Can you provide the raw data? And the person in charge said, sure, here's some Excel spreadsheets with our raw data. You don't need to make a FOIA request or anything. We're just going to hand it over to you. Uh, that's that's not a common occurrence <laughs> in this realm from our research. But, you know, every once in a while you just reach out and see if you can get the result. And we luckily did here. I mean, that really is like transparency all the way through to the the member of the public in in a way that is you're right. That's that's really impressive. Um <laughs> Do you when you when looking at in Utah, because obviously there was um, some some stuff in the news about uh, some situations with the protesters and the police in Salt Lake City. Um, do you do you have a sense or not that that the numbers kind of line up with the rest of the country in terms of maybe you maybe you mentioned this when we were talking about it before, but um, that the numbers tend to line up with what you would expect to see sort of nationwide with with respect to here's what's happening, here's who it's happening to, you know, here's what the warrants look like, et cetera. Well, here's the, you know, this is this is weird. And what we found that's really disparate is that, you know, in some of these cases, so like, um, if, for instance, KATV, they looked at 1,594 warrants from 2009 to 2019 in Little Rock. Of those, 62% were no-knock warrants. So about 6 in 10 are no-knock warrants. That's oh, that's so many. That's crazy, right? That's nuts. That's, it's crazy. In Utah, the percentage, um, like, like 2014, it was 45%. 2015, it was 37%. 2016, 25.6%. 2017, oh. 33.5%. So that's a yeah. decent amount lower. Um, in Louisville, and you know, the problem on this is sometimes the reporting isn't great. So I don't know how much you can trust the numbers. In Louisville, what they say is there were five no-knock warrants issued 
in the case that led to Brianna Taylor being shot. Those were the first five no-knock warrants in the entire year in Louisville, and there was one issued, I think, a few weeks or a month later. I was just looking at Chattanooga because Chattanooga um, was talking about addressing this, and they had said there were no no-knock warrants that had been issued in 2020 up to this point. And so what I'm trying to make sense of in these numbers is how is it that some jurisdictions, the percentage is so high and in other jurisdictions, it's so low. Is it, you know, can we trust that what they're telling us from these other jurisdictions? And if so, you know, what explains why in, in Colorado and Denver, it's so high in Utah, especially Salt Lake County, it's still reasonably high. And then you're saying, uh, well, in Louisville and Chattanooga, it's, it's almost never. So that's kind of an interesting confounding variable that we haven't figured out yet. No kidding. Well, I wonder if it's there's some version of what we talk about on the public facing side when change happens, which is that if there's a specific incident that, you know, that the that the cops point to anecdotally that kind of rises up just legendarily, as it were, inside of that department that's like, well, you remember what happened when we did, you know, a regular warrant for da 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 this happened. So they should all be no knocks if possible, you know. Yeah, and that- but this idea of five warrants all at once of them being like, I mean, you'd think that they were taking down like Kaiser Soze. Like it's that's an extraordinary number of no knocks for, for one case for there to have been none other, it seems to me. But what do I know? No, I mean, you're, you're completely correct. And, you know, the, the target of this case and I don't, I don't have all the details, but from speaking to her team, my understanding is he was, you know, sort of a mid-level drug dealer. It wasn't like a kingpin or, you know, like not like a Kaiser yeah. Sose, obviously, but like. <laughs> who I guess is like a poster in a cup if we're really talking about who. But I mean, it kind of and... is that, like, right? The corkboard at the end of the usual suspects where it's like, well, how did they get these five no-knock warrants? And you kind of see and it's like, oh, well, here's this, you know, they, they saw the package being delivered and let's connect that with a line. Like that's, it's kind of like. What Verbal Kent does at the end of the movie is to like connect these five disparate locations and say, "Oh, all five of these we can't knock and announce," um, and that's that's troubling. And you know, obviously, it's tough to coordinate five no-knock warrants, which is why they've already arrested the subject when they get to Brianna Taylor's place. They presumably just don't know that because there are these five different warrants, and it's tough to coordinate among the five of them. I can't. Two things. Number one, I can't believe that somehow I aided in the seamless use uh, transition that you have made to taking something pop culture related and turning it back and making it make sense in the context of uh, of the law, because that is kind of your specialty when it comes to undisclosed starting out with something like I did not expect you to drop a ween reference uh, that even involved a curse word. I was like, whoa, go Colin. Um, But that is one of the things I love about the I mean, I feel like I get such a sense of who you are as a as a professor, as a teacher, um, when when you start an episode kind of explaining to someone like, hey, here's this thing and here's how it's going to help you understand this other thing better, which may be really far removed from the original thing or they may be very close together. But either way, I think you do such a great job of of creating this sort of interesting context, this interesting window through which we enter the story. Um, so I'm very excited that I have just given you like a bite sized Kaiser Soze version of that. Um, second of all, uh, I wanted to I wanted to say, well, I was going to say I agree with you. And I think it's it, there's, again, that sort of sense of that blog, right? The sort of like in the movie that is this thing 
we got to take these guys down and it's going to be all five places and we got to coordinate them all like that there's a sense of this the sense of of pomposity to it the sense of like guys this is we're the stars of our own movie and we're gonna have to do it this way because that's exciting um and i really hope that it's not as simple as that but i i very much fear it may be um the second thing i was gonna say is what do you and i know you don't like to predict this stuff um do you have any kind of a sense of what is going to be the outcome for these officers in Brianna's case? Yeah, well, this is interesting because I was doing some research today on possible charges against the officers. And there's a lot of talk, you know, if you go on Twitter, you'll see, you know, Jordan Peele and NFL players and NBA players. And they're all, you know, the officers who murdered Breonna Taylor are still free, haven't been arrested, you know, calling for them to be arrested, etc. There's not really any discussion online about, you know, what actual charges would be brought. Um, and what's interesting is, so I looked that up this morning, Kentucky has its murder statute, and one of the subsections of the statute covers what's known as wanton murder. Um, it's kind of the equivalent of the common law concept of depraved heart murder, and that is essentially acting with reckless indifference to the value of human life, um, engaging in behavior that creates a substantial risk that someone could die. And if you look at the comments, there's a commentary when this murder statute was adopted, and they say, here are specific illustrations of behavior that qualifies as wanton murder. And one of those is firing bullets into an occupied residence. And so, um, you know, obviously there's some complicating factors here regarding the warrant and the nature of it, whether it should have been issued, um, et cetera. But this case does seem like a pretty good candidate to fall under that wanton murder statute. And so barring any twists and turns in the investigation, I would hope and think that that would probably be the charge that would eventually be brought in this case based upon what was done here. And that and 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 wanted murder, by the way, is a very, very dramatic term. I wish it didn't sound like it applied to so many of these cases that we've seen rise. Right. This that, that we've seen um, at least the handful that we are getting exposure to uh, either right now or in recent years. That conversation seems to come up a lot is how what what what, what is the charge going to be? I mean, it was discussed with with George Floyd, you know, first degree, sec- second degree, third degree, these different words, these different adjectives that in depending on what state you're in, um, essentially seem to boil down to me to. <laughs> just an utter lack of respect for human life. Um, there's, and, and that's very, very scary when you're applying it to the police department, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely the case. Um, and, you know, the argument here is, uh, and I touched upon it earlier, um, this is not just officers firing a couple shots Uh, in response to what happened. They, according to the lawsuit and the neighbor's lawsuit, they spray more than 20 bullets and they're doing it in such a... The word they use is blindly. Um, You know, the bullets aren't even just going into Breonna Taylor's place. They're going into this pregnant neighbor's place and almost striking someone. And so, I mean, it's, you know... It's tough to, you know, heat of the moment and everything. You have to understand that the police are often in difficult positions. But for them to be firing that many bullets and some of them even going into a neighboring apartment um, to sort of imagine what behavior that would constitute, um, that's very troubling. 
it's very troubling. And and I'm going to let you go in just a few minutes. But I, I will say, uh, just to put it into perspective, I think we all can, you know, we're probably all exercising our imaginations right now as we talk about this. But, you know, in uh, uh, to use an example, like here in Los Angeles, there's this place called the Wilshire Corridor, which is basically Beverly Hills. Um, and it's got these sky sort of sky rise apartments that are, you know, I'm sure like it's basically just you have the whole floor and it's a house, but it's this highly guarded, you know, um, weird sort of skyscraper in the middle of Beverly Hills. Um, the idea, for example, that you would have somebody who had, oh, uh, you know, listen, this guy, this white guy who drives a Lexus or whatever, um, I saw him pick up a package <laughs> that could have been anything from this apartment. Let's issue a no-knock warrant. Let's go in there and spray bullets in Beverly Hills is the most preposterous, unthinkable thing you could ever imagine. And that's really, really really sad. sad. Yeah. And I mean, we've all seen the videos on social media and Twitter um, when you see a white person, for instance, engaging with police officers in a certain way. And, you know, the, the commentary is often, uh, can you imagine if this were a black man who's engaging with the police that way? And it's what's scarier with the Breonna Taylor case is to the point you just made. Um, and it's, it's not even fair to say that because it's not necessarily, you know, it's engaging with cops in a certain way. It's, it's not wrongful. It's not something you should be choked for or pushed down, etc. Um, but Brianna Taylor is sleeping in her own home in the middle of the night. Um, how do you protect yourself against that? You know, that is this old concept of the home is your castle. And um, all these cases deserve scrutiny and, and are platforms for a forum. But just the fact that she is... You know, this aspiring nurse who's on the front lines during COVID, working 15-hour uh, shifts, mm. being such a great family member, and just the fact that her ex-boyfriend once came over to pick up a package that didn't even have drugs, and that puts her life in such danger, um, that's, that's just really scary. And, I mean, how can you have security when that's a possibility? Yeah, absolutely. Two quick things um, for anybody who ha- I, I, I saw that you responded to this online, but for anybody who happens to be listening to this, who's thinking to themselves, well, now, wait a minute. I keep hearing that uh, it was the wrong house. It was the wrong house. Um, do you know how that started? Was it just some somebody well-intentioned, passionately saying, you know, that 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 it was that it was the wrong that certainly wasn't her um, and that it was that it was fruitless? Was is that sort of how that got perpetuated? Well, I think what happened, if you look some of the the articles on the case, it'll say, you know, like this is the house of the suspect, and here's Brianna Taylor's house, which is ten miles away. And so I think that just leads people to say, oh, well, clearly they had the no knock warrant for the wrong house. And in a, I mean, in a sense, it's not completely untrue. It's just saying, oh, well, no, they they intended to get a warrant for her place. They, they did right, because right. this officer saw the ex-boyfriend picking up a package. It's just 
that's so tangentially related to the actual suspect house and where the drugs were, were sold and used, etc. So I think that's the, the, the 10 mile distance mentioned in some of the articles led some to, to conclude, oh, they, they actually just turned up at the wrong house. Okay, that makes perfect sense. And then finally, just to try to, because I do like to try to end on an up note, and um, I think you obviously are are in a line of work that um, unfortunately does reveal your optimism because uh, you are seeing the the hardest stuff, and you are still showing up and educating people, and um, hopefully, you know, feeling like you're seeing a difference in your contributions, your students' contributions, um, the podcast, and all of your colleagues. But uh, people are, you know, they've been very wound up. It's been really exciting to see. Um, you know, there have been some conversations about people crossing their fingers and hoping that that this that that something comes of this um, how can people stay engaged in a way that doesn't necessarily mean they're holding a sign in the street two weeks from now yeah well I mean I think what we're gonna see across the country and we're already starting to see it as I said there's some congressional legislation on policing that's coming down the pipes the best way you can stay engaged is to contact your senator your congressperson, your local representative, um, to reach out to them and say, you know, I'm against no-knock warrants. Here's some information I have. Um, here is why we should ban police chokeholds or severely limit their use. Um, that's what, you know, you know, beyond the peaceful protests is really to reach out to your lawmakers who have the capacity to actually change the law and hearing from their const- I mean, it's an election year. Uh, you know, it's yeah. obviously different offices, but I mean, like this, you know, 2020 is obviously one of um, th- those four-year occasions where we have a ton of elections. And so um, making sure you're voting for the right people who are going to support these reforms and then holding them accountable and making sure they actually will enact these reforms. That It doesn't end up just being we had protests and nothing changed. No, actually... Uh, making sure that we fundamentally change some things that are broken about the current system. Yeah, I would say, um, again, anecdotally, uh, (laughs) the tiniest, tiniest, possibly most worthless tip. But if someone says that they're running on the platform of being tough on crime, that's a real red flag. (laughs) (laughs) That's a real red flag. Um, Colin, thank you so much. Um, Perhaps you and I can talk offline uh, or on email about um, a a good place for some of this no-knock information uh, that we can link to that people can cite um, when they are contacting their representatives and staying engaged. Uh, But thank you so much for giving me this really special opportunity to talk about this stuff. I cannot promise that I won't ask you to do it more with me. Um, clearly, I have a lot of questions <laughs> about a lot of different aspects of the judicial system. So thank you for uh, your patience and for your time. I really appreciate it. And I, I know I speak for everyone when I say we appreciate what you and your students are doing in this case. Yeah, well, absolutely. Anytime. show is recorded by me and edited by Julian Burrell. And as always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by the amazing Say Hi.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.